Welcome to the Splinters Podcast from the team on the bench. Community Radio's leading no-holds-barred Friday night sports show. Available online and replayed on Triple H 100.1 FM. Now, here's your host, the Sultan, Tony Dosen. Yes, welcome to Splinters on New Year's Eve. Tuesday night, the 31st of December, 2019. The last day, the last night of the 2010s decade. And so it's fitting that whilst you're celebrating possibly your last night of this decade that we look back at the last 10 years in the world of sport. And by gee, what a tumultuous decade it was. A decade that gave us five Australian Prime Ministers, four New South Wales Premiers and three Hornsby Shire Lord Mayors. So it's natural to think and natural to deduce that such tumultuousness and flotsam and jetsam found its way into the world of sport. We'll discuss that over the next hour or so. I say we because it's fitting that we bring in to this special edition of Splinters, the 2010s, the decade that was, a man who has lived through those 10 years almost just as solidly and sweated just as many bullets as I did in that time. A special guest from 5CC, a great friend of ours, Keith Topolsky, welcome back again. Thanks, Tony, and it's great to be back, uh, even if it is only for a little while. But, uh, yeah, plenty to get through with the decade that was, and it was, in a lot of ways, a great decade, and in a lot of other ways, it was a cluster of a decade. You better believe it. And speaking of clusters, we're going to go straight away, straight off the bat, the biggest story of the decade, the biggest cluster of the decade, without doubt, was the spectre, the issue of drugs in sport. When you go back to 2013, when Jason Clare and Kate Lundy addressed the Australian media and all dark clouds were being drawn. The darkest day in Australian sport went, it was announced at least, like this. The findings are shocking and they'll disgust Australian sports fans. The work that the Australian Crime Commission has done has found that the use of prohibited substances, including peptides, hormones and illicit drugs, is widespread amongst professional athletes. If you want to cheat, we will catch you. If you want to fix a match, we will catch you. And as you can see by the investigations that have taken place, that we are well on the way to seeking out and hunting down those who will dope and cheat. Well, it turned out sort of that way, Keith, and yet it didn't quite turn out in other ways because you know what? The government hasn't caught all the cheats and hasn't caught all the fixes yet. Nowhere near. They were looking for a scout at the time. I remember it quite well. The Gillard government was on the nose. Whether it deserved to be on the nose, we're not going to talk politics on this particular edition, but according to the polls, they were on a nose. They needed a scalp. And sport a was there. Breaker. They needed a circuit breaker. Sport was there. And as I mentioned on Friday night, if you were listening to the bench, the great irony of it was that Cronulla, Paul Gallen came out of it looking like a drug cheat. You had the entire Cronulla board go by the wayside. Shane Flanagan had his coaching registration suspended by the NRL. There's a doubt over their first ever premiership. And after all of that, Cronulla were the ones that came out of it looking the best. Well... Backtrack a couple of steps there. Stephen Dank, 
who recently was finally charged by the Northern Territory Government of all jurisdictions over some of the things that he has been charged with. But he was the alleged mastermind of the peptides and the PO24 or whatever it was called that was injected into players, coaches, officials, whatever, at the Essendon Bombers AFL Club and the Cronulla Sharks Rugby League Club. And both of those clubs really took the approach in a com- to completely different tacks. Essendon kicking, screaming, pleading their innocence, fighting all the way. It cost James Hurd his job as coach. It cost a number of board members their positions. Essendon haven't really recovered. And that was what turned me off AFL because I was an Essendon fan. And you're right, the way they handled that, it was pleading their innocence and they were doing deals and they were making negotiations as opposed to Cronulla who stood up and looked it like, in the eye and said, you know what, we're going to cut our losses here. It's happened here. Hey. And like I said on the bench on Friday night, and I apologise for the language, you reckon you've got it? Come at me, bitch. And that's what happened. The government went at them, and the case against them was fairly soft in the end, and Paul Gallen and the Cronulla Sharks, they copped a little bit of a suspended sentence. Shane Flanagan lost his job eventually. That that was on the back, on of, the back of things that, that he did while he was suspended and all that sort of thing. But but he wouldn't have been in that position if right. it wasn't yeah. for this. That's right. He wouldn't have been in the position. But at the end of the day, that's all that happened with Cronulla. They still went on to win their premiership. And Essendon has never truly recovered. Mm. If they had their time again, that whole collection of sports officials that stood side by side that day in Canberra in 2013 alongside Jason Clare and Kate Lundy, they're all there. James Sutherland. Andrew Demetriou. David Gallup. David Gallup. Uh, I think Todd Greenberg was missing because it might have been his third day on the job. Might have been his third day on the job at the time. Uh, So there wasn't an official uh, NRL rep. They all stood side by side there. And if they had their time again, I reckon Mm -hmm. to a man and woman, and once again, excuse the expression, Mm. they would go to the federal government and tell them to piss up a rope. That issue hasn't gone away. Mm. Far from it. It's now expanded onto an international stage with the Russian farce. And That's... as we broke on Triple H, we're going to be calling every Olympic oh, event please. on Triple H involving the official Russian team. Which you is will duck be. Egg. You will be. We won't be. Okay. You might be. I won't be. You'll be calling them from wherever you're you're situated at the time. But seriously, the Russian situation mm. is now high farce. We know there are going to be Russian athletes who will compete in the Tokyo Olympics and beyond hand, and they're going to find a way the Russians to mm-hmm. get into the 2022 FIFA World Cup. Mm-hmm. even though they're officially now thrown out. I mean, they're in the Euro finals next year the, mm-hmm. to start the 2020s. Yep. So, goodness me, uh, there's a lot to be played out because, as has been so often proven, the Lance Armstrong case is another one that finally came to a head and mm. was finally resolved when, after a number of mere culpers, Lance Armstrong stuck his hand up and said, you know what? I cheated. That's it. Uh, this is never going to go away because the cheats are always and the the chemists that back the cheats are always two steps ahead of the chemists that are trying to chase them. That's exactly right. And the problem that you're going to have is, okay, you've got these guys who have taken substances. Later on, they're found to be illegal substances. But at the time, they weren't illegal substances. Why are we going to convict them for taking substances that at the time weren't illegal? It's the same as criticising people for 
smacking their child in the 1980s when everybody did it. But now you're going to criticize them based on 2019 standards. You can't do that because you have to take the, and I liken it to the English versus the French concepts of law. Mm. In the English law, the concept is if the government hasn't banned it, you can do it. In the French law, it is if the government hasn't allowed it, you can't do it. You have to take the English attitude because, well, okay, has the the IOC or WADA mm. said that, well, it's okay to take three caffeine tablets at once. Well, if they haven't okayed that, then you're a drug cheat if you take three caffeine tablets at once. That's it. That's, whoa, hang on a minute. That's the harshest of harsh yeah. lines, isn't it? And then if you're going to make it that black and white, well, then you would have, instead of 10,000 athletes marching into the stadium in the Tokyo Olympics opening ceremony, you probably have about the, 100. Oh, forget 100. about cutting two zeros. I'd cut three zeros off. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Selling pies and a hot dog and sushi yep. outside the main gates. Watch this space. That will be an ongoing issue. Without doubt, the Olympic Games in Tokyo will be the first headline act of the 2020s in August of 2020. So let's then go back and look at the great achievements and the great events. And the other great story, the good news story, particularly locally, is that of women's sport. We're going to touch on that in a, in a lot of detail in the second half of this episode of Splinters. But that's not to say that men, even though they were perhaps overshadowed for a lot of the time, didn't to contribute to the Australian sporting landscape in particular during the 2010s. The high point for mine... In the 2010s for Australian men's team sports was reached in the middle of the decade. In the space of eight weeks in 2015, there was firstly this event on, the, on a January night in 2015. Sporanovic needs to get it away and Matt Ryan went upside. for it and the offside flag is up. Well, I was waiting. Suspended oh animation for the touching. Put his flag up because it was offside. But he was waiting until the player got involved. Has he blown the whistle, the referee? That's it! That's it, they've done it! They have done it, Australia! History created with the blast of the referee's whistle. And 55 years after they first dared to dream of being part of the giant continent of the north, Australia are kings of Asia. Can you believe that? The misery of defeat in 2011 vanishes in a green and golden hue of delight four years on. And the golden generation may have brought us World Cup qualification, but the new breed has brought us a shiny silver trophy. An historic night is called by Simon Hill, Australia's Asian Cup victory, their first major trophy won by the Socceroos. Forget the Vietnam tournament of 1967. That was just a that was just a, a, a propaganda tournament. This was the first fair dinkum tournament that Australia had won. A national uh, or inter-confederational title, which Australia is still going to uh, reap the benefits of at the start of the 2020s. They got their invitation into the Copa America that uh, will be played in Argentina and Colombia in the middle of 2020 because they were one of the last two Asian Cup winners. What's happened since then, though, Keith? Ange Postacoglu has moved on. He's now got success in the J-League as a coach. He didn't part on the best of terms with the Australian media, perhaps the Australian soccer mafia, whatever you want to call it. 
There was a question mark about the way he left, but he did get the runs on the board and he is still the only Australian coach to win a major title like an Asian Cup. That's very true. But as you say, this was the opportunity to really build something special, to announce to Australia that, hey, soccer has arrived. Soccer is here. Get on board or get out of the way. And it's floundered. As is, as is the want of almost every Australian sport, aside from the AFL, somewhere along the line, someone got greedy, wanted to make it all about themselves, and now they're sitting on what is, what is fast becoming, what, what currently sits as Australia's third football code, could be destined to return to fourth. And that's not because rugby is growing. That's because the A-League and everything they built on it is just going backwards because they didn't know how to build on it. And now all of a sudden they want to expand and they're talking about promotion and relegation. Well, trying to bring everything European to Australia doesn't work because, hey, newsflash dingus, it was the Asian Cup that we won. Not Think about that. Not Euro 2020 or Euro 2016 or whatever the case may be. Well, look, let's see what happens. Firstly, with the Socceroos, who have gone back under Graham Arnold since. They did qualify for every World Cup in this decade. Didn't do anything when they got there. Indeed, the uh, the late Pim Verbeek was uh, the last man to lead the Socceroos to a win in a World Cup finals tournament, which was rather poignant given his passing in uh, at the back end of 2019. Let's go then to the other. Before we do, mm-hmm. there's an interesting point that has just been missed there, and that is that the two most successful Socceroo coaches since Aussie Hus, Pim Verbeek, and nobody in the media had a nice word to say about him because they thought he was an arrogant twit. And Ange Postacoglu, who nobody in the media had a nice word to say about him because they thought he was an arrogant twit. Maybe, just maybe, you hire a coach to, what's that word? Oh, win, rather than play nice with the media. And that's what your media team is there for, to play nice with the media. But, just, just a random thought, yeah, maybe. Yeah, exactly. But then your, your, your media team at Soccer Australia, they, they, well, that's a, another cluster altogether. Look, the other major event, the other major win by an Australian male sports team, it didn't take too much longer to come. We go to a March night in 2015 in front of what was then and still is a world record one-day cricket crowd of just over 92,000 at the Melbourne Cricket Ground who were there for this. Two to win. Smith heaves it away. That'll do it. Steve Smith fittingly hits the winning runs. And Australia are champions of the world. What a great win in front of a record crowd here at the MCG. Australia beat New Zealand. They've been the two best teams in the tournament and Australia's depth and class come through. And there's that sea of gold that Ian Smith talked about. All the Australians rush onto the field, crowd on their feet. A comprehensive victory here for Australia. Yeah, New Zealand were brave. They've been excellent in this tournament. It hasn't been their day today. Australia, right from the word go, have been on song and they've executed their plans well. And there they are, the youngsters and the experienced players that means so much to all of them. Australia defeating New Zealand in the 2015 Cricket World Cup final at the MCG. Had a familiar ring five and a half years later at the back end of the decade. But it was Michael Clarke's last hurrah, it has to be said, because four months later he carried on a bridge too far with a bad back 
and they, he lost the Ashes in his last series as captain and then went into retirement. And then shortly afterwards came the Nadir, the problems in South Africa and Sandpaper Gate, which Australian cricket is only still just recovering from now and is only still just making headway. In the meantime, India have charged ahead and have become not only the financial powerhouse, but the playing powerhouse of uh, world cricket for the rest of the decade. Not saying that Australia have dropped away too far, but they are certainly behind India but in the pecking order. And again, this comes back to how you manage internal relationships because e even now we see that Ricky Ponting's got media career happening and to a lesser extent, Alan Border does, Mark Taylor does, Steve Waugh when he chooses to talk to the media, aside from Splinters, of course, of course. we got the exclusive. Mm -hmm. Even he will be able to talk to the media and have them on a string. Michael Clark does not. Why does Michael Clark not have them on a string? Some people say he's too aloof. Some people say that he's too cool. confident or cool. Too much bling. But he won. That's the point. He won. And then when he carried on a little too far and he lost, everybody wanted his head. But when you're the captain of the Australian cricket team... The second most important job in Australia behind the Prime Minister. And at one point, Prime Minister John Howard said that his job was less important than the job of captain. Yes. Exactly where do you draw the line and say, well, this is getting a little bit unfair. Okay, he's the captain. He's going to do unpopular things. He's going to make unpopular decisions. But if you win, I'm sorry, but that's what he's there to do. He's not there to be Mr. Popular. You win. And, and interestingly, Michael Clark was captain of the Australian cricket team the last time Australia was number one in the World Test Match rankings. Which, Funny that. Which begs the question, what was he doing that Steve Smith hasn't done since? Steve Smith leads by example, but... But got caught with Sandpaper yeah. Gate by the fallout there. Mm. Which leads us to individuals. And yes, there were many individual great events, but for mine... The one individual moment by an Australian male sports person in the 2010s, and you can get back to us uh, at the Bench Facebook page if you disagree, was this. He won the Australian Masters just five months ago in November and won the gold coat. Now he has this putt for a green one. the Wizard of Oz. Yes, it was the moment that Australia finally broke the shackles and got the monkey off the back at Augusta National. He is still to this day the only Australian to wear the Green Masters jacket after a few Australian Masters gold ones. The Australian Masters isn't even played anymore. But interestingly, again, after that great moment, it's the only major he's won uh, in that period. He Leading up to that 2013 Augusta National Masters uh, victory in that playoff, he butchered a British Open. 
His putting stroke went downhill. A lot of people say that, you know, he had to leave the broomstick and go back to the standard putter. He's now gone back to the broomstick putter. He went four years without winning a tournament until he finally won the Australian PGA on the Gold Coast in the second last week of 2019. Hopefully, Adam Scott can realise some of his potential in the 2020s and add to that one major win at Augusta. The biggest problem that I see with this selection is not that it doesn't belong. It does belong. But in terms of what Australian golf has, again, been able to do to capitalise on that. and Jason Day won a, won a major after that, but yeah. it was only the PGA. And it was an iconic moment because the way Adam Scott celebrated, it was not, look at me, look at me, how good is that? You could actually read his lips and he said, come on, Aussie. Yep. All of a sudden... In the 72nd hole in regulation all, when he sunk the All of a sudden, it was about the nation and about the sport being part of Australian culture. And, and let's and face the, it, it is, because year-round you can play golf here. And in his his words in the in the, in the cabin afterwards, in, in post-victory uh, uh, interviews, he paid tribute to Greg Norman, hmm. his mentor, the man that brought the game to Australia in a great way through that 1980s and 1990s period, looked up to him as a mentor. But again... Golf has sort of lost its way. The Australian Tour has lost its way. There's only really two mm. tournaments now. We have to wait for the President's Cup to come in to get any decent players to come here because it's only for two tournaments at the back end of a season. We have to pay big dollars for players that don't, uh, let's just say, take any interest. And then you can't sell solid food there because if you do, then... Yes, <laughs> yes, there are problems. <laughs> Absolutely. Don't cough on me because I don't, know, I, don't, I don't want to know what's coming next. Look, the other big story for the 2010s was no doubt the uh, explosion on the scene of this competition. The Melbourne Renegades somehow have won their first Big Bash title. No one here knows how they've done it, but they have. A 13-run win, the most unlikely of victories for the men in red. And in 40 years of loving the game of cricket, I have never seen that in any form of the game. Seven for 19. The Melbourne Stars lost. They were absolutely cruising at none for 93. It just shows you why we all love sport. We love sport because when you walk through the gate, you never know what's going to happen. The Melbourne Renegades beating the Melbourne Stars in the last Big Bash final played this decade at the Dockland Stadium in February of 2019. We've had eight editions. It's ballooned out into... Well, a hit and giggle thing that Andrew Johns played in back in the day at the Olympic Stadium at oh, Homebush yeah. when there was a cricket pitch laid down there just as a gimmick to now the biggest cash cow in Australian cricket and one of the biggest cash cows in Australian sport, which has got the attention of cricket followers and non-cricket followers alike. It's been tinkered with, perhaps not so successfully in recent summers though, but it is still now a staple diet of the Australian scene in summer, something you would not have even dreamt of when the English started a T20 competition 10 years ago. It is the worst thing that has happened to Australian soccer, is the Big Bash League, mm. because it has just obliterated the A-League as a genuine competitor. The only place where you find excuse me, the A-League soccer being a genuine competitor is in Melbourne. Yes. Even here in Sydney. Sydney FC does not... Com well, okay. Sydney Thunder 
might be able to go a little bit with Western Sydney, but Sydney FC play a second fiddle to the Sixers. And then, okay, the cricket can go toe-to-toe with the soccer, but Adelaide, it's yep. cricket. Perth is cricket. Hobart, they don't have any competition. Brisbane is cricket. Yep. It's the worst thing to happen to the A-League. But is it also the worst thing to happen to test cricket? I don't mean as in terms of the ratings, because it's had a bigger impact on one day. I ask because the fashion or the skill, the set, the mindset of test cricket... It's changed. It's changed. Five-day test matches where you get five genuine days, they don't exist anymore. Generally speaking, not. And hence the push to four-day cricket. I'll take issue a little bit with you on one-day cricket. What what, what T20 cricket around the world, because the Big Bash is one of the leading franchises that are now springing up all over the world in the Caribbean, the Middle East, uh, in England, not to mention the monolith that is the Indian Premier League, the IPL, Goodness me, we've even got T10 leagues now appearing in Dubai. Ten overs a side each. What constitutes a game? Two overs? Pretty much in T10 cricket, indeed. You might as well have one ball, one ball, that's it, and then just have everyone turn up with carnivals around it. The one-day game has suffered because the number of meaningless one-day games has now been exposed for what they were, except Mm. for World Cups. That is the genuine event that one-day cricket still hangs its hat on every four years. And we've already heard what happened earlier in the decade with the 2015 World Cup. And it leads me, as we draw towards the end of the first half of this episode, to, for my my money, the greatest single day in non-Olympic sport this past decade. July the 14th, 2019, on one side of London to the other, Two events were, were coming to an apex at the same time, which were to have lasting effects on those that saw them. First event, we go to Lords. 2019 World Cup final. This is how that ended. It's going to be on Martin Guptill. It's going to be on Martin Guptill. Two to win. Guptill's going to push for two. They've got to go. It's got to throw. It's got to go to the keeper's end. He's got it! England have won the World Cup by the barest of margins! By the barest of all margins! Absolute ecstasy for England! Agony! Agony for New Zealand! New Zealanders are still counting boundaries and looking at fine print and trying to work out how they were dudded by the rules of the game. the end of the day, it was almost destiny for England to somehow find a way, even if it was via the back door, to win their first World Cup after losing up team finals beforehand. Referees who make errors at law. I uh, think we've had I think we've seen this movie before. Yes. We saw that later that year. Later in the decade. We've already discussed that on earlier editions of Splinters. At the same time, just across the other side of uh, the Thames River, uh, the other side of London, at Wimbledon, this took place in the men's singles final. And that's it. On a massive miss hit. Wimbledon, number five for the Serbian superstar. What a treat this has been. The top seed triumphs and it can surprise no one. He's beaten Roger Federer 
today in the longest final in Wimbledon history. The first ever tie break at the end of a fifth set in a Wimbledon men's singles final at the end of the longest men's singles final of all time. Shortening of the cricket, but the lengthening of the tennis where you have modern-day fast-food-style solutions for traditional games on traditional venues. July the 14th, 2019, was anticipated to be Super Sunday. I don't even think the English, the Poms, knew what it would turn out to be like. I just wonder, and, and again, I'm, I'm playing the naysayer tonight. You have but, been. But in, Where's in those, terms where are those of, nails? Where in are terms they? of the Wimbledon final, yeah, it was an absolute thriller, no doubt. But... Is it really a situation where if you're in the final, there's no tomorrow? Why do we need the tiebreaker? I understand in the round matches, otherwise you get that Eisner-Mahut 70-68. to 68. But One of the great you, events of the decade too. Yeah, and I found that enthralling. But it's not fair to force that on them in a third round match where Mahut, or sorry, it was Eisner that won. John Isner, yes, that's right. Had, he played for three days. They came he... back over three days to complete that fifth set. And then when he finished it, he had about six hours to sleep before he had to go out and play the fourth round. And got beaten in the fourth round comfortably. And he, he got smashed. Pardon the pun. But why can't you have that for the final when there's nothing tomorrow? It's not on tomorrow. This is it. Have, have that and have that drama because Federer Djokovic going 140 games... That would just rate through the roof. Wouldn't it? What? And... It would rate to Saturn. Absolutely. And if you have to come off, you have a reserve day the next day, as it should have been the case in the Cricket World mm. Cup final. Look, other mentions of what happened in the decade. You mentioned rugby union. Should we really mention Israel Folau? But he was there in the decade, unfortunately. Australian rugby union went uh, from... In 2011 World Cup, third place in the, uh, behind New Zealand and France. Runner-up in 2015 to New Zealand at uh, Twickenham. And the less said about the 2019 World Cup, the better, where we now have Dave Rennie as coach starting the 2020s. And in our major codes, teams of the decade, as much as we hate to say it, Sydney Roosters were just the team of the decade in the 2010s. Three grand final wins compared to Melbourne Storms 2, even though they had equal number of minor premierships uh, and equal number of grand final appearances. That win over Canberra on October 2019 was just enough to get uh, uh, the Roosters over the line. And in the AFL, Hawthorne, three grand final wins to Richmond's 2. But Richmond with a bullet at the back end of the decade, looking to start the 2020 strongly. Okay. We've reached half time. My goodness me. How can we get 10 years into 60 minutes? We're doing our best. We're going to come back to look at the great success story that was women's sport in this decade after this on Splinters. The 2019 Australian Ice Hockey League season has concluded with your All About Caring Sydney Bears winning it all. That doesn't mean it's all over for the year on the hockey front. Log on to bearsshop.com.au for all your Bears merchandise options. And stay tuned to Splinters and the Bench for updates coming out of the Australian Women's Ice Hockey League and the world's top competition, the National Hockey League. Sydney Bears, hear us roar. Sponsors of Triple H. Yes, welcome back to Splinters 
on a Tuesday night, New Year's Eve, the last night of the decade, or at least that's what it was when it went to air on Triple H 100.1 FM and on the web at www.triplehfm.com.au. And you can pick it up on podcasts, the good ones, Spotify, iTunes, TuneIn, and the bad ones as well. Mearscast, the bad ones. Yes, Mearscast. I'll, I'll get a message about uh, that you'll, you'll get a message about that, all right, let me tell you. Probably on the first of uh, the first minute after midnight on January 1, 2020, or January 1, 2021. We're looking at the 2010s, the decade that was, second half of this episode of Splinters, and without doubt, Keith Topolsky, the great success, the great movement, the great force of nature in world sport, and particularly Australian sport, in the 2010s was women's sport. It was fascinating to watch from the perspective that you knew you were going to get blowback from the dinosaurs who said women's sport isn't entertaining because they don't hit as hard and it's not as fast and they're not professional, so they're not as skillful. It was really fascinating to watch when Elise Perry was forced to pick a side yep. in the sport war. And everybody said, this is unfair on poor Elise. Why can't oh. she be a professional at both codes? But you want to be treated like the men. You want to get paid like the men. You have to make the choices like the men. As she has. And she did, and she handled that with aplomb. And that, I think, was the catalyst for women's sport to be taken seriously because you still have a lot of the top-line female athletes in the female competitions still going between codes. But when you get and to still that, working. And still working. But when you get to that really top point, like Elise Perry did, she recognised that in order to earn the money that the men do, she had to make a choice like the men do. And she didn't complain. She was a little bit critical of soccer on the way out in terms of how they handled themselves. Absolutely. As she's entitled to be. Yes. But in terms of how she handled it, I think Elise Perry did a really good job. And I think that was the catalyst to really allowing for women's cricket and women's soccer in particular to push for these full-time contracts. This, I wouldn't call it elite money, but certainly money that you can live off. Indeed. And you don't need to work a second job. Although it's it's more money in terms of the old style rugby league back in the early to mid nineties where every second player was conveniently named a marketing officer. Oh yes, absolutely. That's or, an, or a Leagues Club Sellerman. That's another story for for another day. But look, the Elise Perry story is just the highlight of a number of highlights where Australian women carried the can and certainly carried the can for Australia at Olympic level. Mm -hmm. The Australians at the Olympic Games got bogged down by the James Magnussons of the world in London, the, the bullying culture, the general lack of performance across the board from male athletes at Olympic level, with the notable exception of our sailors, which got us out of jail in London in 2012 when we were looking really down the barrel of not quite a Montreal-style disaster, but very close. But it was women's sport that paved the way. Starting in 2012, when, as mentioned, Australian Olympic stocks were at a pretty low ebb. The nation was almost panicking as to what was happening on the medals tally. Then came this. Set. Pearson flew out of the block, so did Wills and Harper, and Pearson's in front as they come to the both, and Pearson clears out from Harper and Wills. Pearson is well clear. She's only got a couple to go. Pearson and whoever. Pearson and Harper. Go the line, Pearson. Pearson, I think, beaten Harper by about a hundredth of a second. It's a dipping finish, but I think that Sally Pearson's got there and got there by the narrowest possible margin. There's nothing in this. 
No doubt the high point, the zenith of Sally Pearson's career. On the same night, she and Anna Mears won gold medals almost against the odds, even though Sally Pearson was favourite to win her 100 metres Olympic Games uh, hurdles crown. She did have her worries going in. Anna Mears uh, was uh, almost cycling against an entire nation in her uh, sprint final. One enduring vision that I'll always remember, Keith, was Sally Pearson and Anna Mears embracing outside the mixed media centre near the Australian team village the night they both won their gold medals. And I thought, bang, you know what? What a iconic image for women's sport, women leading the way out of the wilderness, out of the mire that Australia had got itself into in that 2012 London Olympic Games. And for both of those ladies, well, look, Anna Mears retired in Rio in 2016. Sally Pearson didn't quite make Rio in 2016 due to injury. And they've now both retired. But their contributions to lead the way for women's sport won't be forgotten. I think what makes Anna Mears stand out to me more than possibly the Olympic moment of the noughties, which was Kathy Freeman's win in the Sydney Olympics, Kathy Freeman had the entire stadium behind her. Yeah. Anna Mears had the entire stadium against her. Oh, yeah. And she didn't just have to beat her opposition. Pendleton, Victoria Pendleton, yep. She had to beat one of the greats. Yes. Which Kathy Freeman was up against a solid field. It wasn't a legendary But Maria field. Jose Perec had gone home that, bef- in the lead right. up to that... Uh, 400 metres series of races. But Anna Mears was right up against it. She was up against one of the greats. She was on foreign soil and she just stuck it up them. She oh, just yeah. gave them the bird and just, not literally, but metaphorically, and just took it away. That's what I think makes Anna Mears win a little bit more special because it was over there. True. And it wasn't just on foreign soil. It was in the most vicious place in terms of Australia England rivalry. rivalry. Oh, yeah. And she did it, and she just wiped the floor with them. Indeed. In the end. In, in the end. But look, Sally Pearson, don't take anything away from her. She was building up to that for a number of years. And mm. look, you've only got to look at the, uh, the lack of Australian gold medalists in the main stadium in the most basic of all sports, track and field, mm. to... Uh, see how great that performance was. Speaking of great performances, we come to the end of the decade. You want to talk about long droughts? You want to talk about foreign soil? You want to talk about doing it, coming back from adversity? This lady actually gave her sport away and tried Big Bash cricket before she was able to do this. Life-changing moment here for Ash Barty. Championship point in the Roland Garros final. Von Drusha are up and she serves very deep at the backhand is blocked. Back Von Drusha with the backhand centre of the court. Ash Barty with the forehand cross court onto the line. The stretch, the high ball from Von Drusha. It will land the other side. Barty for the title! Ash Barty is Roland Garros champion 2019. Straight sets victory. 6-1-6-3 in an hour and 10 minutes of Marquette Von Drusha. She is the Roland Garros champion they embrace it the net. She is also the new world number two. Australia has themselves Ashley a new champion. Barty. Ash Barty's first major uh, winning at Roland Garros earlier this year. She's going to face her own pressures, no doubt about that, because she's going to be the one with the whole nation behind her as we start the 2020s with the Australian Open at Melbourne Park. 
this and every January for the next three to five years. You've only got to see what happened with the recent Fed Cup final and how she carried that Australian team then. And that one loss late in that Fed Cup final turned Australia's fortunes from perhaps victory to defeat. But there is still so much to like about the Ash Barty story uh, that she will be carrying a nation's hopes for years to come in tennis, certainly in a much better way than other individuals that play tennis for Australia. And this this is why I really hope that Ash Barty's attitude at the moment doesn't start to weigh her down. And what I mean by that is she's carrying herself so professionally with such great aplomb. For and it's about person. the team. It's not about me. It's about the team. My team does this. Our team does that. Yeah. But at the same time, there's not much personality there exuding outwards. She's not letting herself come across. Now, I think this is an overcorrection because of the two imbeciles, and I think I'm being fairly generous with that terminology, who Curious are representing... Curious and Tomich. Yeah, mm. those two imbeciles. So she's going too far the other way to try and hold everything back and just be the girl next door that doesn't say anything. I want to see what she's like when she lets loose and really has something to say. Because if she allows it to build up, then it might implode on her again and we might lose her again. She's given it away once, as you say, gone to cricket, come back and won the French Open. If we lose her again... She won't come back. She won't come back. And I don't want to see Ash Barty being the talent that was lost because she felt she couldn't be herself because of the two Muppets who were sitting on the other side of Australian tennis. Well, I can tell you who wasn't a Muppet during the decade. Uh, you could argue a case that Australia's most successful athlete and Australia's most successful female athlete was this one to kind. It's coming to the turn, the roughing mask of time, two lengths clear. Hartnell goes to second, giving chase. Now Happy Clapper and Winks is rounding them up, coming right around the field. Kluger takes an inside run. She's gone for home already, Winks. She beats off Hartnell. Kluger going up the inside. Happy Clapper can't go on. Winks is two lengths clear. Kluger sticks on. Then came Hartnell, but she's well clear, Winks, inside the final 100 metres. Today we farewell an Australian icon, the greatest of all time. Winks wins her third, Quinn Elizabeth beats Kluger, Hartnell third, Happy Clapper fourth, then Shillelagh, Mask of Time, further back to He's Eminent, not a factor in the race, from Dan's Dan's Dance and Harlem finished tailed off. Winks, 33 in a row, 100 Group 1 wins for trainer Chris Waller, and she's done it in emphatic style, as always. Very rarely has Australian sports seen the scenes that we saw at Randwick Racecourse in April of 2019 when Winks ran her last race, the Queen Elizabeth Stakes at Randwick, her 33rd consecutive win, an Australian record for the most number of consecutive wins by any horse of any breed. She brought people in, the great mare, that didn't like racing, that didn't follow racing, and, and that just came along for the ride. And she became a phenomenon in her own right. And in fact, she was the third of three great mares that Australian racing has produced in the first part of the 21st century. First, there was Maccabi Diva in the noughties. Hashtag proud lady of Port Lincoln. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Can't forget that. Then there was Black Caviar, who retired undefeated. And we thought at the 
first half of the decade. She went to Royal Ascot. She won there when she was off colour and not 100%. Mm. Came back to Australia, retired unbeaten after 25 starts. And it could have easily been her last race at Randwick that we just replayed. But then Winx came along and her style of racing, the devastating sprint to put pay to her opposition well and truly in nearly every race that she contested, every win that she contested, was something that would be breathtaking. And you want to talk about Australia-England rivalry, the battle with Ben Battle in her third Cox Plate in 2017. The English racing experts that came out here and wanted to poo-poo her and said that Australian racing was second rate. She was only beating hacks and second raters. Well, we all knew differently. And I know one thing, and I've been following and loving racing of all codes for a heck of a long time. I know I'm certain I'm not going to see the likes of Winks again for as long as I live. I don't think you're going to see... It wasn't just a case of seeing a mare like Winks. It was, as you say, back to back to back. You went from a Kyvie D to Black Caviar immediately into Winks. That's not going to happen again. No. Of course, you have such freakishly talented athletes, whether they're human or not, to have that all of a sudden. Because even in rugby league parlance, you had Andrew Johns through to Jonathan Thurston. But you had either side. You didn't have that immortality mm. in the halves either side. You don't have that in cricket because... You had Shane Warne moving into Nathan Lyon as the best off spinner. Okay, and who was the best spinner before Warne? What, Tim May? Uh, no, you have to go back to Bill O'Reilly. and That's a Cla big gap. And Clary Grimmett and, and, and yeah, That's exactly. That's a huge gap. Kerry O'Keefe would say himself, but he, well, next. Mm. <laughs> no, that's more Peter Griffin than Kerry O'Keefe. Yes. But for the back-to-back-to-back... You're not going to see that again. No, absolutely not. And Winx was, she was a great champion. 42,000 people packed Randwick for that last day in April of this year. We certainly won't see a crowd like that again for a long time. All right, let's then look towards team sports. And this was where we really saw Australian uh, team sports, women's team sports, come to the fore. Uh, throughout 2000, throughout the 2010s. And I, I forgot people like Stephanie Gilmore and Hannah Green, who won her first major, mm. the British PGA this year. She'll be one to watch in the 2020. Stephanie Gilmore, an all-time great. Gee, you can't throw them all in. We'd be here for seven hours, let alone one. Mm. But we've got to go back to team sports. And the forefront, the, the vanguard of Australian women's team sport, a real turning point was this moment at the 2016 Rio Olympics. Two nations rich in rugby tradition, Australia and New Zealand, were battling to claim the first Olympic gold medal in women's rugby sevens. New Zealand struck first as Kayla McAllister used her momentum to force her way in for the try. Australia leveled the match when Emma Tanagato stretched as far as she could and grounded the ball on the try line. Australia scored just before halftime to take a 10-5 lead, and that lead increased in the second half when Ella Green showed her undoubted speed to put Australia up by 10. Australia were leading 24-5 when New Zealand tried to mount a comeback, but it fell short. Portia Woodman scored as time expired. It was too little, too late. 
New Zealand had run out of time, it would have to settle for the silver. The gold was heading to Australia as the favorites never wavered under the weight of expectations. After a 92-year absence, rugby returned to the Olympic stage. Canada earned the bronze medal with their win over Great Britain. New Zealand took the silver. The first women's rugby sevens gold medal was won by Australia. Beg your pardon about the American commentary there, but we couldn't quite get our uh, hands on the Australian commentary. Uh, certain restrictions uh, stopped us from doing that, but that one-minute highlights package just encapsulated not only how far the Australian women's rugby sevens team had come, but how far the Australian women's rugby scene had come. Our own Alex Bellamy uh, is a case in point, uh, leading the way at a local, a local country level that the Hornsby Lions now play in, in the Central Coast competition to just show you how far that code has come at that level of the game. I think there's a chance that in terms of the Australian commentary, someone flagged it as a fake or a parody or fake news because, hang on, Australia beat New Zealand in the rugby? Wait, what? <laughs> what? No, 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 hang on, let's try that one again. It might, but, have, it might have had something to do with M. Braybrook calling that game, but that's another story. <laughs> we won't even go there. But look, that will be one of the great battles of 2020. Make no mistake about that. Because New Zealand got their revenge in the Commonwealth Games final that was played two years later on the Gold Coast. They'll be the two favourites going in. But let's not forget other Australian women's team sports, particularly this one. They play tip and run, they get home. Australia, champions 2018. They have now won it four times in the last five occasions. Australian women's cricketers will be the defending World T20 Cup champions when we get to the Australian tournament right at the start of this decade. It's only a matter of weeks away. We mentioned it on a recent edition of The Bench. Katy Perry and all that coming out for the final on March the 8th, 2020 at the start of the 2020s decade. A real opportunity again for Australian women's sport to announced themselves on the world stage. I just hope that the people that turn up to the MCG to perhaps form this world record crowd for an enclosed women's sporting event that is being touted are there to watch the cricket and not an overrated American sonstress. But at Matt, as Matt Mears said, at least they're turning up. And that's the thing is that if the sporting element or the sporting event isn't enough to attract them, then find something else to get them in as well because at the end of the day they're still going there to watch the cricket my thoughts on cricket are very well established I know but but not everybody thinks the same way I do because if they did rugby league would be played in every corner of the world yes there is the opportunity to bring in new fans and if that means engaging Katy Perry so be it use her and if you get means. and if you get one or two extra people that take up the game as a result of what they see before or after Katy Perry does her thing, what's wrong mm. with that? There's absolutely no doubt about that. And look, and that's not even mentioning the other great Australian-New Zealand rivalry, netball during the decade. The Australians had dominance for most of the decade until the World Cup in 2019 in England, which mm. New Zealand won 
narrowly in the final, even allowing for the fact that Maria Falau, husband of Israel, for those of you that have uh, been living under a rock for all that time, she's the really si- I never knew that she's the <laughs> she's the silent one in that partnership has to be the silent one, dominated in what turned out to be her last appearance uh, in New Zealand colours. And that leads us to a a domestic uh, scene. And when you talk about explosion of competitions, at the start of the decade, a domestic national women's rugby league, national competitions in Australian football, national competitions in cricket, national competitions in soccer, wouldn't have been unheard of or maybe just pipe dreams. But we reached the end of the 20. Tens, Keith, with established national competitions in all of those codes. Let's take a listen to the closing stages of a tremendous event in Adelaide not so many months ago at the end of the 2010s, the 2019 AFLW Grand Final. And you can hear the crowd, Jace. That lady on screen has just made her way back up to the ground to enjoy the last two minutes and four seconds of this grand final action. And the crowd just come up on screen. 53,034. Wilson slaps it away. And two out of three ain't bad. The Adelaide Crows AFLW Premiers for the second time in three years. Three thousand people turned up to set the Australian record for an enclosed women's sporting event. Okay, they might have got in for free and they might have thrown the gates open, but they still got fifty-three thousand people to turn up to watch a women's grand final. And then the phenomenon that is the WBBL that broke away from the BBL for the first time and was a standalone competition at the back end of the decade, October, November, twenty nineteen. That saw this final play out. Can Laura Harris do it again? Yes, she can. And the Brisbane Heat have gone back to back. They were the best team all season. And in front of a sellout crowd, they have taken back to back titles. Brisbane Heat back to back champions, and they start the 2020s as favourites with an established squad. They got full houses in much smaller arenas, but at least they paid to get in to watch those WBBL Grand Finals. That's going to be the AFLW's challenge to get people to pay to watch them play. But of course, we had the explosion of social media over that photograph and that kick early in 2019, which I personally think was something spectacular and beautiful to watch. An athlete in full cry, similar to the Ted Witten photograph for many, many decades ago. The question, though, is, is are other agendas at play? I hope to God not, because it takes away from the from the sport and the great leaps and bounds these competitions have taken over the last 10 years. Well, there's a bit to unpack there. The first thing I'll go back to is unpack the separation of the WBBL from the BBL. I didn't like it, not because it was separated, but because the women's competition was brought forward. Didn't allow for all the kids to get out there because it was played before the school holidays. That's the great attraction of the BBL. It's in the school holidays. You can still separate it, but you can start... And you can have whole days of cricket across your television coverage. 
you can have the first game of the day, North Sydney Oval, WBBL. Let's go to Melbourne for another WBBL fixture. Then we're going to Adelaide for the BBL and then Perth for the BBL. And you can do that. You can, un you can unpack them separately without having to separate them in terms of the timing of the season. In terms of the length, you can have the same. You can do the entire same thing, but you can run them concurrently. And you won't have them competing against each other. Then you move to, you're still paying to get into the WBBL as opposed to the AFLW. I discussed this on the 5CC show with my compatriot there, and we agreed that is a big problem that the AFLW has in terms of claiming to have a right to a professional contract because they're generating so much interest. Yeah, it's easy to generate interest when people don't have to part with their hard-earned to go and watch. You bet. Make them pay to get in, and we'll see how serious they and are. And that's going to be the challenge. Which is why I'm still looking at that Adelaide Oval crowd with suspicion. They had to pay nothing to get in. They only had to pay for the food and drinks once they were in there. If they had to pay, would you have got 53000 I don't think so. Probably not. You'd probably you'd... get forty. Maybe. But you'd probably Because it was feel... the Adelaide Crows plane. Exactly. That's right. Exactly. And to finish with the Taylor Harris statue, two things that stood out to me there. Malcolm Blight was filthy on it, and I had to agree with him because okay, it's a it's a statue that was erected in her honour, but what has she done apart from be the target of trolls? I'm sorry, but what is her level of achievement? Aaron Phillips, who has achieved so much more in multiple sports, gets nothing. Taylor Harris, for being a victim of trolls, gets a statue. What, seriously? And the second thing is, what was she doing with her left knee in that shot? I don't understand the kicking motion where you bend oh, the knee. Oh, please. I don't, I don't get it. Enough of that. But look, don't even get me started on who's worthy of statues. Kathy Freeman, if anyone should be worthy of a statue to start mm -hmm. off with, she genuinely united a nation... For 45 seconds that night in 2000, but that's another story in the past decade. Speaking of the decade, here on Triple H, it's fitting that we finish with how we went here on this station. By G, we've come a long way in the last 10 years, Keith. Uh, we've come from just calling A-grade rugby league with a little bit of New South Wales Cup on Saturdays when Rick Dunlop and Albie Tallarico and Keith Robert Payne and Mal Starr all left... It could have easily gone to crud at this place. Um, I make no apologies for bringing sport to the level that it has at this station against some opposition, some loud and some not over the last 10 years, to the point now where we are regarded as one of the premier community radio station sports providers in the city of Sydney that covers the sports that others don't. How do we do that? Simple, by getting out there and being part of big events like this event, the last ever finals day of Kingsgrove Sports Centre T20 Cup cricket at the Sydney Cricket Ground. It finished like this. I'm, I'm holding on to the, I'm holding on to the, onto the, uh, onto the cans here. He is standing behind me. Three balls. I'm waiting for him to rip them off my head. As Lay continues here from the Paddington end, Barrio one run to win for the Sharks. And it's oh, up in the air. It's going to be safe behind the behind the keeper's hand. They've completed the one. It's gone for four. Sharks have won. Sharks have won the Kingsgrove T20 Cup final. What a performance! 
And we joke about Matt Mears having his moment in the sun for calling that final while I'm standing at the back of the broadcast box, three balls away from calling the winning runs that the Sutherland Sharks uh, pulled off that Aidan Barry old top edge. But you know what? People like Matt Mears and Kiwi Mick Reinish and Jago Colina and Dom Rizzuto and Alex Bellamy and Sarah Marshke and yourself, Keith, and James Cheeseman back in the good old days are a real part of the Triple H story this decade. I like to think that I played a little bit of a role, but in terms of the great moments, Mears is always going to win it with not just him showing off and boasting about the fact that he kept you at bay, but also a catch that was taken earlier in the innings. Yes, I know. Well, earlier in the day, actually. It was earlier. Uh, yes, sorry, it was earlier. It was earlier in the day. day. It was in the first of the qualifying finals. Look, we had to draw the line somewhere, though, <laughs> Keith. We couldn't bring in everything. This is not a two-hour show. It's even going to be a little later. It's going to be a one-hour five, one-hour mm. ten as it is. But you know what? We couldn't bring them all in. But we will finish with what I think was probably a fitting way to see out the decade of sport here on Triple H. And this is what we're going to leave you with at this episode of Splinters. The Canterbury Cup Grand Final of 2019 was the last major event we called on Triple H at the back end of a decade. And I think it's quite fitting. The number of extra voices, the number of female voices that we injected into the call is a fitting way to go out. Here's to another great decade, another 10 years of great sport here on Triple H with women's sport taking its place here just as it is elsewhere over the next 10 years. And that decade will start with the next edition of Splitters next Tuesday night. Here's the 2019 Canterbury Cup Grand Final closing stages. Until we meet again on Splitters, it's goodbye. A couple of, a couple across Newtown to Trendle out the back. Here's the stab kick from Magulius. He's looking for the weak three corner. Phillips, Phillips is gone. Inside pass for Kennedy. Oh! They're sending it upstairs looking for onside. They're going to check the onside. Todd Smith says it's a try. He just wants to make sure that's a try for your life. And Will Bunner Kennedy, the controversial inclusion, as he stayed on the field when he perhaps should have been ordered off under the head bid provisions 10 minutes before the end of regulation, has scored the winning try. That kick is oh. Tyrone Phillips onside, though. They're going to have another look at this. The angle wasn't wide enough on replay. The Magpies White Tower. Phillips has gone down in back way as well. Will the Kennedy, they're checking the, the grounding now. They're saying it's okay. Kennedy grounds it under the post. Here's the winning try for the Newtown Jets. What a play for Billy McGurlius. Late in the tackle count, rolling the dice. Try! Try is given for Will Kennedy under the post. Newtown regain the lead. Newtown 18, one with four, 15. Kick to come. Magpies Waitara scoreboard. 1.55 to go in extra time. From 35 metres out, the tap goes out to seven. To Davies, there's the siren. Jaden Reese no. Davies goes to ground in the tackle of Moby River. That's it. It's all over. The Newtown Jets make up for the disappointment of 2018 at Leichhardt Oval. They win their first Canterbury Cup, New South Wales Cup title since 2012, when they also came from seventh spot to win a great grand final at the Balmain Ride Eastwood. A great grand final here today at Bankwest Stadium, Parramatta. 
running extra time by the Newtown Jets. Plenty of controversial talking points out of the match, make no doubt about that. Final score, Magpies by Tyra scoreboard, Newtown 20 have defeated Wentworthville 15.